Get up. It's time for work. Your Amazon clock screams at 4am. You quickly scramble to get out of bed, but not fast enough. Your clock screams again. Don't be late again or you'll get reported. You go downstairs to get some breakfast, but your Amazon kitchen cooker doesn't work anymore. You can't afford a new cooker since the prices are sky high, and you can't go to the store to get food since the Amazon store only sells food that works with the later versions of the kitchen cooker. You're still hungry. You leave the house and hear the house report. Left at 4.27, six minutes late. Your Amazon home is reporting to your boss at work. You get in your old car with the Amazon Traveler 1.2. It drives you to work, but gets stuck in the traffic jam on the highway since it doesn't have the latest traffic avoidance feature found in the Traveler 2.0, which you don't have because you can't afford the upgrade. You get to work late at the Amazon CD factory and find out that your passkey doesn't work. You see a message. You are late. Your bills for the Amazon gas and Amazon food and Amazon electricity are past you. You are fired. You turn around and curse the Amazon monopoly that knows everything about you. You curse the monopoly that you cannot escape. Welcome what to 2025. <laughs> God damn. Yeah. Welcome to Modern Guilt, episode 29, 29 or 30, one of those two. We'll figure that out later. We're trying out a new thing where we're going to start each episode with an obscure but relevant paragraph from a text that we've uh, been reading or plan to read that will forecast the flavor of the episode. So in case you didn't pick up on that one, uh, in this episode we're going to be talking about monopolies and tech, which is something that, you know, is is somewhat of a, a common thread through all of our episodes to date. Mm and which is something that is pretty relevant to events that have unfolded over the past five or six days now. I think by the time this comes out, it will have been six days since the um, so-called Capitol Hill attack or siege, uh, whatever you want to call it. Best boomer frat party that I've ever seen. <laughs> I was kind of gutted that I wasn't there because I was yeah. thinking like if I had a six pack and like a fucking shitty speaker to throw over my shoulder that would have been wild man i didn't do anything for new year's as well so I, there's a lot of pent up mm. shit that i didn't get to get out a lot of masculine energy that you could have um exuded in the car park <laughs> yeah exactly yeah you actually just made me realize how much those scenes look like like tailgating outside of an nfl game or something oh the problem is that i think uh the um powers that be missed out on key like uh you know milestones when you grow up and yeah yeah i totally get you ah oh, dude i love those scenes of chaos eh? like i remember going to i mean here we do it with sports games i guess and in canada they do it with hockey games mm. um you know where you have big riots down the streets of just pent-up uh population rage mm -hmm. suddenly exploding but if you're uh a like nerfed fucking being and you can't handle <laughs> scenes of chaos then it must come across as very scary yeah it's um that's a really interesting little thread we could tug at for a moment because that um sort of like contained violence and chaos that just tends to sort of like rear its head in um almost like institutionalized or socially accepted ways like in sports games or like the context of maybe like a house party mm. 
reminds me of something that we've talked about on this podcast a long time ago now, but um, this idea sort of um, formulated by like Carl Jung and some of the like classic psychoanalysts from back in the day who were talking Classos, about classos, <laughs> um, <laughs> who were talking about like the innate need for for humans to um, acknowledge and exercise some of our like destructive and violent energy. And that in the past, yeah. um, we've had institutions like pagan religion, um, where we would, you know, burn effigies and make violent sacrifices um, to the gods and stuff. And that was a way for humans to sort of exercise their violent impulses in a controlled or like understood way. It's mm. quite interesting when you think about it, like sports games where you see like, you know, the, the hardcore football fans rioting in the streets or you know um people fighting in the stands and stuff even though like we acknowledge that as criminal um it's still pretty well accepted and understood um and the police will sort of, of yeah, yeah yeah will sort of arrive to those scenes and kind of just contain it and then just like let it simmer down and sort of dissipate <laughs> you know what's interesting is that there's almost a similar rate of arrest and fatality among some of those as well um through notable uh sort of sport game riots that I don't have on hand with me. Um, there's actually been like similar levels of like single digit fatalities and people getting arrested and, and smashed and everything like that. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely feel that that is gotta be the case, especially with that much lockdown. It's not healthy. People need to get out and, you know, exercise yeah. their pent up rage. That That's such a fascinating, <laughs> like completely um, ungrounded, but possibly interesting angle on this. Like um, for the last, you know, almost what, 10 or nine or 10 months now, people haven't been able to go to live sports games and scream at each other and smash things afterwards. Yeah. And mm. in the same way that in 1984, the, the proletariats are subdued through the, um, exhilaration of the lottery. You know, you could make the argument that the, the proletariat yeah. in our world is subdued through the exhilaration of sports um, so that we don't feel the need to pursue any uh, real ends. Then we chase like fake victories in a game um, and we haven't been able mm. to do that. So now we're looking for something else to sink our teeth into. But yeah, we say all this to say uh, scenes at the Capitol Hill uh, riot were interesting. Yeah, somewhat blown out of proportion. Um, Some of those shots were so aesthetic. Like it looked like it. a fucking scene from the Joker, man. Yeah. You know that that really famous photo that is going to absolutely go down in history of the there's like all this tear gas kind of just like hovering in front of the Capitol Hill building, and they're all on the mm. steps waving flags. Yeah, you you'll see that in textbooks in like a hundred years if books still exist. Um, You'll yeah. see it in your VR classroom environment or something. Yeah, if they don't digitally fucking change the photo and yeah. like Nazi flags <laughs> instead of Trump flags or something. Yeah, that's you know? such a good point. Yeah. yeah, and all these like poor Amazon fulfillment workers and you know Jeff Bezos crying for uh, order and peace and <laughs> amongst the uh, the brutal chaos of this uprising. Mm. So um. We were talking just before we hit record about a way to approach this episode or like, you know, structure the conversation somewhat a little bit to the extent that we do plan anything. And we, we kind of acknowledged that, you know, the, the Capitol Hill thing, despite it being a huge story, has 
probably been um what's the word done to death done to death yeah so i was gonna say i was gonna try and use the saying there's no point flogging a dead horse but i was like it's probably been killed and flogged but that doesn't make any sense uh but so we are not going to flog a dead horse but i think you read something damon or sorry you've been watching something which is still like somewhat relevant if you kind of connect the dots so we're gonna dive into that um so well as always something major happens and then i try and figure out like what's the lens to try and view you know what's going on through because a lot of this stuff is delicious tacos um famed twitter pervert has uh enlightened us to has happened before and it'll just keep happening you know along with the whole sort of ray dalio mindset he actually released something leading up to these events that i have yet to read that's Mm, also in the same vein of just sort of you know this is um the result of just human nature and action when it's squeezed and oppressed and and everything so Mm -hmm. What I did, so I saw a documentary a while ago called Hypernormalization that I was talking about, I think, and I can't remember what episode it is. It's one of them, um, you know, or maybe it's not. I might have just been talking about it to Hayden outside of the pod, um, which we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, believe it or not, we are actually yeah. friends. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a rich, thriving life outside of this podcast. So, yeah, I... I've been fascinated with the works of Adam Curtis, like, and his way of connecting dots and using, like, you know, past uh, historic events to make sense of what's happening right now. So he has this entire series. It's like a three-part series. It's, you know, three hours long in its entirety called um, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, of which the synopsis is, uh, as I pull it up, argues that computers have failed to liberate humanity and instead distorted and simplified our view of the world around us. It was done in 2011, which is kind of um, surprising that mm. so much has been lost in such recent history as well. You know, there's like all of these events that keep seeming to be new have actually like kind of transpired within very recent history, like the last decade, basically, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so there's a ton of shit here. I'm just going to try and get through it. So basically it starts off the first episode, uh, where it's talking about Bill Clinton in 1992 was visited by Alan Greenspan, who at the time was, I think the chair of the federal reserve mm-hmm. and Alan Greenspan was always known as this sort of like rebel economist. He's like fascinated by Ayn, Ayn, Ayn Rand. And I'm not going to get into who she is, but she's essentially like a big figure in um the philosophy of selfishness (laughs) yes Um, she yeah she essentially believes that oh sorry go on i was just gonna say like in her book atlas shrugged um outlined the sort of philosophy of like altruism through personal responsibility Mm. in that um the best way that you can impact the world and help people around you is by helping yourself um, so to alleviate the burden of care that the government has on giving you a good life by giving yourself a good life, uh, which mm. like ran into a lot of like economic theory and like neoliberal thought. Largely because this guy, Alan Greenspan, who ran the Federal Reserve, was like, you know, uh, fascinated with it. And early Silicon Valley, before it turned into its fucking neutered version of whatever the fuck it is today, 
was neutered is the perfect word to describe silicon valley actually <laughs> right just like like yeah devoid of sexual or primal drive it's like this it's... kind of like pathetic frame of like the uh, animal that it used to be it's but the any, plastics anyway. man it's the yeah. plastics in the water right? yeah <laughs> so it must be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh any, anyway so alan greenspan um was urging bill clinton to deregulate the economy and allow computers to start building uh you know that sorry to uh, bring in computers to build these like complex risk management software and everything and let them sort of dictate the flow of capital. Mm -hmm. um, and he dubbed this the new economy. And the idea was that if we allow computers to uh, direct the flow of capital, then there will be less booms and busts and it will do it like in an efficient manager that's within acceptable parameters of risk, which is just fucked really so <laughs> you know it is it assumes that these models are correct and everything like that so bill clinton essentially went ahead and did that and he deregulated large parts of the economy and financiers were then able to uh you know allow these computers to uh, dictate where they would invest in where they wouldn't um <clears throat> as well as fuel the new sort of it's not like the knowledge economy, but it's essentially, you know, like the new technocratic society where computers are going to revolutionize everything and, and whatnot. But um, come 1996, Alan Greenspan noticed that profits were rising. The stock market was going way up, but the production of each employee, so how productive everybody was, wasn't rising at all. And he started worrying that he was starting, uh, that the economy was hitting the speculative bubble and we were essentially just ramping everything up to, um, you know, w without considering the fact that we weren't that much more productive than we were before. So in a nutshell, computers were nowhere near as productive as we thought they were going to be. So that was hit with all of this hate from hedge funds, financiers, and a lot of people within uh, Bill Clinton's close circle who had decided that Alan Greenspan was full of shit because he was saying, he was trying to ring the alarm bell saying, wait, we're not actually more productive. This hasn't led to a new paradigm. The new economy is bullshit. And everyone was like, shut up. So he changed his position and caved under political pressure. He was four years too early. This is the fucking fascinating thing about speculative bubbles is like, they're like impossible to time. Michael Burry was, I think like a year early to the uh, housing bubble or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that doesn't sound like a lot of time, maybe, but when you are margin to the tits and you're paying fucking interest on like your position to basically, you know, short the market or whatever, it, it hits pretty hard. Like, you, <laughs> yeah, I don't think yeah. you could hold a position for four years um, to uh, bet against the market. You just get fucking blown out. Anyway, so the market crashed. Greenspan was right in the early 2000s. Part of the deregulation had also forced Eastern Asian countries to deregulate their own financial sector and pump easy American big fat Western dollars into them, which when the, you know, this, there was a bunch of, there was a uh, council of economic advisors who had basically been like, no, don't, if you do that, it's going to fucking destroy these economies. Um, you know, when capital was suddenly yanked out of it, which is exactly what happened. So do you mean yanked out of these Asian economies? Yeah, these Asian economies. So 
they deregulated. They forced these Asian countries to deregulate as well and accept American dollars mm-hmm. um, because everybody was getting like fabulously rich. And they're like, look how good democracy is and look at your shitty countries. You know, they they should uh, open up and allow our superior liberal dollars to, you know, help <laughs> bring riches to you. Um, and they essentially forced these governments to deregulate. Money pumped in. Bubbles started to burst. Money got yanked out. These countries started to collapse. The IMF ended up moving in, the International Monetary Fund, and was like, we'll save you with billions of dollars of loans. And none of the countries wanted to sign. This is like Indonesia, South Korea, Thailand, stuff like that, which is interesting because if you go to those countries, you can still see empty... Basically, all the money that flooded into them got fueled into property because mm-hmm. suddenly everybody was like, whoa, I have access to cheap cash. All of a sudden, I'm fucking able to buy five or six houses. And developers started building these huge apartments that are still there today. It's fucking mind-blowing, you know? All yeah, of that right. You money, mean just like sitting vacant or like half completed? Yeah, you would have seen that, right? Like just the fucking empty apartment blocks around Southeast Asia. No, I, I actually didn't come across that much, but I clearly wasn't looking in the right place. Ah, fair enough. Um, in Jakarta, in Indonesia, they're everywhere. There's mm. like these massive skyscrapers that have just been left. Um, yeah, that right. was like a byproduct of the 1970s. Sorry, 1970s. 1997 Asian financial crisis. Yeah, okay. So all of this money flooded into Asia. The banks took on these billion, got loans from the IMF in the tune of billions and billions of dollars um, that was meant to be used to help stimulate their economies. But mm-hmm. instead, the banks use that money to pay back the Western investors. And then Indonesia basically just fell into like anarchy and chaos, which was a complete clusterfuck. So as it turned out, these complex computer models didn't do anything other than protect wealthy financiers in the US while totally ignoring any sort of sense of stability within, you know, like people with no money, proletariats and whatnot, Mm -hmm. which led to like massive amounts of chaos and and hecticness. So the idea of market stability was complete trash, essentially, because it's not, there's sort of, you know, these ideas that there's risk management software can bring about this equilibrium where we don't have boom and busts and all capital is allocated to where it should be, um, was nonsense. And the system of control essentially just devolved, um, but also managed to protect these really wealthy investors and financiers and consolidate power into them. So like, this is just the first episode um, and I've done like a really rough overview. It's fucking much more complex and convoluted and I'd highly recommend checking it out. But it ends with like Georgia, Ukraine and Pakistan had uh, off the back of, you know, the explosion of the internet and everything created their own sort of spontaneous revolutions as people started to talk about how they felt that they were, um, you know, at the hands of injustice from large, powerful elites, and then had, in fact, stormed their capitals and chased out politicians. And um, and <sighs> specifically noted in the documentary is the fact that they had rushed the capitals and so quickly and so spontaneously that no one even knew, no one could have predicted what would have happened, that politicians had left their uh, secret documents fucking all over the show. And there's these incredible footage of like all these people running through the Capitol with like all of these scared politicians running out. So what did that lead to? Uh, it led to the fucking huge crackdown post all of those um you know, revolutions and protests on on the Capitol to basically like the Patriot Act 2.0. Can I stop you for one moment? Yeah. Would you please be able to explain 
I think I can I can draw my own conclusions, but just for the sake of clarity, can you explain, please, like how these revolutions in Georgia, Ukraine, and Pakistan were tied to the financial economic stuff that you were talking about just before? All right. So this is part of the thing with this documentary is it's all over the show, which is why right, my okay. description of it's all over the show. Cool. But the idea essentially that Adam Curtis was trying to convey is that um, institutional power has created these uh, models of how they think society works and tried to set it up in a way that they could institute their model and you know framework as the ultimate dictator of what happens mm -hmm. and they use the you know the newfound technology of the internet to basically and and computers and whatever to um allocate money to certain areas and said that it wasn't going to cause any unrest and it was going to lead to a more stable society that hangs in this sort of theoretical balance of uh you know nature whereas in fact what happened from the creation of the internet was spontaneous disorder and spontaneous mm -hmm. um, revolution and it was in one way used by financiers to consolidate their power and in another way used by proletariat working people or whatever to create revolutions and band together so so, so these countries where those spontaneous revolutions occurred were being managed under sort of like liberal economic policy using these risk management uh, models. And then that's why this disorder was generated and eventually erupted. Is that right? Not entirely. It's more that it's just used as like a, a one showing you how um, it was used to try and it wasn't used to consolidate power. I think initially it was just used as a way to like capture wealth. Mm -hmm. um, and on another side, it was used to these people went nuts and had like big riots and protests because they were dissatisfied with the government. They'd reached yeah, right. a certain point of just being furious. Whereas, so I know there's like a, like a fucking long intro and a big jump, but it's essentially like on the one hand, people use these models to, you know, capture power, capture wealth and everything. And on the other hand, when people are like dissatisfied, they have these spontaneous uprisings. Right, um, so the two aren't necessarily connected, these two sort of narratives. Yeah, One just they're, follows they're the other as, as a way to illustrate a greater point. Yeah, pretty much. Right, pretty okay, much. cool. Yeah, so if if trying to like bring the analogy back to today, I guess, you have institutional power that has this concept of a stable democratic society and how it should operate. And then you have a frustrated working class that has spontaneously banded together using the same network to fucking push back against the government. And mm -hmm. institutional power benefits from this concept of equilibrium, that there's this like mythical, you know, balance of population of you know bad balance in the population where people will always you know like be stable and happy and pursue life and liberty but in reality it's never going to be like that it's uh -huh. a fucking constant disorder you know <laughs> so like one of the one of the main themes um within this is and that that's like within the second episode uh -huh. which i'll just loosely brush over as well was back in the 1930s the concept of ecology was born you know and and one of the first concepts of the ecosystem is that everything hangs in this state of balance like if you if you take a tree down um it'll rot and then that will provide the nutrients for another tree to take its place within this 
you know, massive forest and it's always sort of hanging in the perfect uh, number of prey predators and, you know, nutrient givers and nutrient takers and everything like that. And it's, it's all wonderful and beautiful. That was like the first concept of the ecosystem. And systems theorists took that idea and were like, oh my God, that's exactly how humanity is as well with, you know, we hang in this perfect balance of supply and demand and, uh, you know, people working together in this spontaneous order. And so this guy, Jay Forrester, who was one of the first systems theorists, used that model to uh, present a piece called The Limits of Growth. And the whole idea was that we need zero growth, you know, and we need to hang in the balance of nature and hit this steady equilibrium where we don't exhaust the Earth's resources um, and, and whatever. And he had this like big diagram of like uh, industry and politics and, you know, working people and like resources that feeds the whole thing. It was really interesting. Mm, I'm looking at this diagram right now. It does look I, really interesting. Yeah. It yeah. looks um, like super ambitious to try and crack this nut. It but, yeah, really it was. sounds really interesting. So, well, and, and you know, it, we, we've all heard that argument as well. This is one of the things that I find fascinating is this whole, mm. like, steady state equilibrium. I mean, fuck, when I was learning economics, that was, like, the predominant viewpoint was that everything hangs in the beautiful balance of equi uh, equilibrium um, as long as we don't have people dicking with it. Then we'll <laughs> always, you know, hit this perfect, uh, yeah. beautiful balance, which is... Uh, as it turns out, there's a, a backlash. Sick joke, yeah. <laughs> well, you know what's fascinating is that I feel like when I when you hear that argument, we need limits to growth. Uh, you know, we can't endlessly consume. Blah blah blah. We've heard it all before, um, and it actually generally is espoused by people that you would regard as having you know the best of intentions and uh, be very sort of at the forefront of environmental movements and everything like that. But in the 1970s, when it was first put out there by Jay Forrester and the, the limits to growth um, piece was sort of publicly released. There was a massive backlash against today eh, from environmentalists, um, from like grassroots yeah, right. environmentalists. That's really interesting. Who said that there's complete bullshit because the whole model was based on the fact that um, people's values and behavior is static. It won't change. It's just going to, it's like, it doesn't need any, you know, changing at all. It's just going to sort of fall into its natural place. So that obviously is not the case. And um, regardless, these policies were enacted and these systems were set up anyway to try and curb, uh, you know, the way that people were acting and everything, which obviously led to widespread fucking unrest. And the whole stable systems theories started to fall apart when someone started observing wolves and elks over a period of history and noticed that predator and prey dynamics were actually far from stable. They're always changing and chaotic. And sometimes wolves, you know, completely um, eat all the elks and there's suddenly no more wolves. And, you know, you have like populations going extinct, new ones forming. Boom and bust um, cycles. Boom and bust cycles mm. and complete extinction. Like that fucking happens. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it just, yeah. So there's these spontaneous revolutions that are more likely to be the true natural order and the balance of power constantly changing and shifting and moving as opposed to the stable state equilibrium that actually just seems to enforce uh, existing power structures more than anything else. Mm, yeah, that's so, a 
fucking really really interesting analogy i've like yeah. um studied some like political ecology and sort of like um i guess like i was like i was gonna say environmental ecology but that's kind of like an oxymoron or a or a double positive but you know the idea that political relations need to be viewed as like embedded in like an ecological structure which is you know along these lines that we're describing but for whatever reason i hadn't thought about the recent sort of movements or you know events unfolding in that context so it's nice to be drawn back to that so one of the fascinating things i got from this is that he talks about these spontaneous revolutions that swept through asia and europe and everything um coordinated via the internet had no one in charge and occurred with no real over over, like demands being made so Uh people just were like furious they they rose through they swept through the capitol buildings and marched through the streets and nobody had any fucking direction and there is no like list of demands that's like just what happened with you know the 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 stories you hear coming out of capitol hill are hilarious for that reason because you hear like all of these mega mega people you know fucking quotes um swept through the capital and then just kind of took selfies and yeah they're just chilling uh, out in people's offices like putting your, fucking, there. putting your feet up on nancy pelosi's desk reading her yeah. emails yeah yeah and you know just sort of mulled around and then went home um which is exactly the same that occurred with these other countries <laughs> is that there's this sudden uh revolution these people fucking go nuts and then um dissipate go home and all of those, unfortunately, were followed by, like, Patriot Act 2.0, like, fucking massive crackdowns and uh, further consolidation of power, but also, like, a weakening of the whole system, you know? So it's, like, even more unstable, but just poorer. And those with power have significantly more power than they had before. Which surely in the West wouldn't happen. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's, it's fucking fascinating. I probably haven't done the best job of, like, get, like the scope of the documentary is huge, you know? And it's just well worth watching yourself just to fucking get an idea of like how massive and crazy all the different stories are. One of the ones that I found interesting was like the whole concept of stable systems and equilibrium was part of what gave birth to the communes that started emerging in the 1970s. Where there is like all of these people were like, oh, well, without like politics and leaders, we can all exist within uh, geodesic domes and just live peacefully, you know, in, a, in accordance with nature. No commune apparently lasted longer than three years that had been uh, formed from these concepts of stable equilibrium. And all of them had largely fallen apart because of the fact that, you know, while all members of the commune are free, some are freer than others. And the lack of uh, power structures led to stronger members with louder voices bullying the weak. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's really interesting. What a I, I also have heard that like a common problem in those communes was um, just the fact that, I mean, much like what we've been talking about, like you can't f- account for, for randomness and, and chaos. And mm. often like the plants they were growing would get struck by disease or, you know, like a fungal infection would start spreading through their fucking food crops or, you know, an illness would spread throughout the, the small population of the commune and then people would have to fucking just go to the nearest city and go to a hospital or whatever. And it's just <clears> like random bullshit like that. Like like that story, the uh, Biosphere. Was that what it was called? Biosphere 2.0. Biosphere 2.0, yeah. where those 
those people tried to you know create this perfect self-sustaining like cyclical ecosystem sealed inside a glass dome mm. like can't do that stuff gets in like yeah. there's always a factor of randomness that will enter and and course correct you know whatever yeah. you're trying to build well it's fucking fascinating eh? because i mean the whole narrative of this is basically power and people with power trying to hang on to that and building simplified worldviews where you know it's like everybody thinking that if if only we could all get along and things would be so cheery uh, and their power would be conserved and they'd be able to retain it. And that never happening because we live in an inherently chaotic, sp spontaneous system where the only fucking constant is like wild, random shit happening all the time, you know, that is entirely unpredictable, mm. which is hilarious because, I mean, it's funny if you sort of take the, if, I don't know, if you have my sense of humor and you sort of like to stand back and watch the chaos and see these like see shit just hit the fan repeatedly it's hilarious because that's just what really is just going to keep happening um and it's like you know ray dalio's universal theory which is the only one that i've sort of come to believe is probably correct of people clamoring for power initially finding edges to take over um you know whatever sort of corporate sphere or ecosystem that they're currently trying to inhabit and then doing whatever they can to retain that through uh you know legislation and uh trying to stamp out revolutions ultimately getting eaten by their own um fucking hubris and their own their own uh, their intention. own initial success yeah yeah man like so it, it's like that uh greek myth of saturn eating his son was it or chronos or whatever and how he's like devouring i don't know his sorry <laughs> oh, okay there, there's a famous picture you look it up if you look up uh saturn eating his son um you'll you'll know what i mean uh and my understanding of the myth is essentially he was oh, trying of course yeah he was trying to eat his this children fucking because beautiful. he was worried about being usurped um mm, and ultimately right. uh his doing so led to his usurping in the end i think it was one of his children that he didn't eat um eventually usurped him tale as old as time i'm sure it'll play out the same way <laughs> well maybe they'll bring about yeah, peace yeah. and order yeah they, they won't that's yeah, I'm. I'm definitely going to go and go and watch this doco. It sounds fucking amazing. Um, is it is it available? Yeah, for free it, well, online. Yeah, or is yeah, it we'll have it paywall? in the show notes. Yeah, I've I've got the link. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So I'm just looking up the Saturn eating his son. Uh, yeah, ate each of them at birth, and he died. That's how it ended. This um, <laughs> Francisco Goya. Yeah. It's it seems like he was a really great artist. I'd like to check out more of his his stuff yeah yeah Pretty cool yeah i love these mm. uh greek myths and how relevant they are to today because it's funny like all of these theories all of these models you know complex mathematics and everything to try and predict human behavior and you look to history and the stories that have survived over the years um and they have so much more relevance man than than all of it you know well i i think it's it's interesting because it's almost like these ancient myths or parables or kind of um folk wisdom is often kind of like the the surface level understanding of the maths that underlies it and so it's like we've understood a lot for thousands of years and the age of modernity or the age of science however you'd like to ex explain the last sort of two centuries like the 
it feels as though we've been making a whole lot of progress and like technologically we have but in terms of like our understanding of the world we kind of haven't we've like been able to like uh build out the existing sort of theories or principles but like we haven't we've kind of filled in the empty space mm. inside of the the kind of principles of containment of if that makes yeah. sense well it's these the pop, you get these people who it, one of the most fascinating things about this documentary is that all of the um you know incredibly intelligent uh powers within these institutions had taken this rational logical view of the world and said that you know humans are just as machines they they operate in a logical fashion except for those damned ones that don't those fuckers uh you know and they'd all tried to simplify the world to fit their own narrative and hubris every single one of them and that was ultimately their downfall like all of these fucking people are wrong you know and i think the same mm-hmm. thing happens now you have these um idiots that rise through the ranks at universities who think they're way more intelligent than they are because of their uh cheering on through their you know colleagues and whatever and uh accolades that they receive from publishing in journals with no basis within the real world like we almost died uh when von neumann who is considered to be one of the most intelligent people in the world tried to start the fucking cold war because of his game theory so he had specifically gone out and de- he developed this theory essentially that was considered to be, um, you know, how people can act hatefully towards each other in a rational sense. And the idea was that, you know, you will maliciously attack someone if they are planning to attack you. Um, I don't know if people are familiar with like Prisoner's Dilemma, but it's, you know, basically this like really bleak and inaccurate um fucking theory that we'll all sort of snitch on each other to get at one another um and he was in charge with advising the president at the time and had recommended that they try and nuke russia because russia was going to nuke them according to his theory luckily people didn't listen to him but if they did that would have started a world war that would have been a fucking nuclear holocaust yeah absolutely like these people are so it's one thing if they're wrong like right now what's the worst that i i don't want to say what's the worst that could happen because it could be bad but you know like hopefully it'll be funny hopefully it'll be something like big tech trying to crack down on you know it's on the masses and they're obviously going to flock to like another fucking um you know platform there'll probably be riots and shit and it's just like you can't contain the population especially not when you're big like they're just fucking eating themselves at this point twitter apparently according to a discord source of mine (laughs) (laughs) let's Uh, let's hear it has given away upwards of 10 percent of its revenue with its purge you know Mm. and paved the way for another social network like they just they're fucking handing off the keys at this point so yeah i this is something like you and i have been talking about over the past few days because i think actually like our like uh our messaging back and forth has probably been at a at a peak um in the wake of this Capitol Hill event and the the social media censorship that has followed it. I still, I'm less convinced than you are that Twitter and Facebook will hand away power accidentally. I still think that the vast, vast majority of people don't care about what they're doing. Um, I think <clears throat> I think the problem being that like most people who sort of inhabit 
what I would call maybe like alternative social media platforms or the corners of mm. Twitter where you and I lurk, I, I think are still the, the vast minority of people. I don't think people, I don't think most people are, are even aware of the censorship happening on these platforms. And most people I don't think are reading the news either. Mm. I think 80% of, you know, Facebook users are people over the age of 25 who are posting photos of their ute or like their their pickup truck for for american listeners you know what i mean they're, they're yeah. just fucking sinking piss and playing like the slot games on facebook <laughs> yeah <laughs> and while i think they're probably going to drive a lot of their like sort of maybe like political or intellectual users to other platforms i still think they'll be able to like maintain a critical mass but i i, I guess the idea of driving a one particular subset of users to a different platform or to multiple different platforms is like a, a problem in itself um, in that you have this like subversive, you know, a group of social media users, but whether or not that eventuates into anything that can threaten the positions of the tech mm -hmm. giants, I think is still questionable. Good point. The incumbent masses are pretty incumbent. <laughs> but <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> what I would say is that it, Okay, so may not overturn them, but definitely will solidify a company like Gab for the longer mm. term in the sense yeah, that they now a have a you know larger user base than they had before, um, mm -hmm. which destabilizes in the long run those bigger companies. You know, mm. if they're giving away, if they if they think oh it's such a small number of people we don't actually give a shit, we want them off the platform, um, and we're not going to worry about it in the long run. I think it still is a crack, uh, and it's a crack that could form to something bigger, or it might not. It might, you know, you're right. Like it might just um, cease to be a news story within the next six months, three months, mm. two months, week. You know. So um, something that we've both looked at over the past few days as well, and something that you didn't end up reading, but I did, it is something that applies pretty pretty well to what we're talking about, and it's uh, an article that was published. A very long time ago, but was sort of uh, brought to the fore once again by The Atlantic. Uh, and the article was called The Story of a Great Monopoly. This article was initially published in uh, 1881 by H.D. Lloyd. And I didn't even realize The Atlantic was that old. So I was like pretty impressed to even just learn that. Um, I, maybe I've been living under a rock and I'm the only one on earth who didn't know that. But anyway, um, I found this article really fascinating and what it is is basically an exploration of this kind of conjunction between you know two groups of businesses that were able to collude with one another and essentially create a monopoly over i'm speaking maybe a little bit hyperbolically at the moment but essentially over the entire united states and it was the way this um sort of federation of uh, railway presidents combined their powers with uh, the Standard Oil Company, which was owned by um, John Rockefeller and another guy, Samuel Adams, in order to essentially create a stranglehold over over all um, all of the oil industry and the freight of all goods in the United States. And basically, these guys they differed from the monopolies that we see in like the tech and media industries at the moment in that they weren't ideologically driven they were driven by 
you know, the goal of financial dominance. Um, <laughs> Good old but, fashion, uh, old school monopolists. Eh? I like Mr. Yeah. types. I trust them more because I know what they want. You know. Yeah. No. I, I'm. I'm the same actually. <laughs> and the the common thread is that they um they crushed all of their opposition in in a in a ruthless way in the same way that you know Facebook and Twitter and the the mainstream media do at the moment in terms of kind of carrying out the social and cultural execution of their of their opponents so in the late 19th century these um monopolies would essentially deal with their smaller competitors by so sorry i'll um i'll try and illustrate this a bit better so rockefeller um struck a deal with this federation of railroad presidents because at the time um all of the regional railroads were independently owned so you would have railroads going from say uh new york to chicago and that would be one leg of the railroad infrastructure and that would be controlled and owned by one group um but these guys essentially formed like a cabal and then rockefeller would work in conjunction with this cabal or group of railroad networks and he would say to them that if you guys basically overcharge all of these smaller oil producers i'll ensure that there's no way that they can gain enough of the market share to offer their offer like a viable viable amount of services to any other railroads so they would give rockefeller like huge subsidies and rebates on all of his shipments and then because his competitors would have to pay much larger um, costs to ship their oil rockefeller would be able to like either buy them out outright and then essentially just like tank their businesses um, or would force them to sell their oil to him and then he would in turn ship it at the rates that the railroads offered him so this all culminated in a bunch of riots across like the entire eastern half of the united states in 1877 which i had never heard of before but was really interesting because the national army was actually redeployed from like the frontier where they were still expanding into the um like indigenous territory and in the south where they were um, on guard against mexico to to go into cities like philadelphia baltimore um indianapolis pittsburgh and actually subdue this unrest because relating back to what you were talking about before like these attempts at um solidifying power or implementing these like sort of unbendable systems mm. always result in the population like essentially exploding yeah okay i was just thinking um <clears throat> sorry to interrupt no, uh, it's okay. an important caveat is that that's at the expense of the people um because i'm just imagining yeah 100 people what about china um, if your overlords have 10 x your net worth, you probably aren't going to be very pissed, you know? Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's, that's actually something that I, I didn't explain. So thanks for bringing it up. Like, because, because Rockefeller had created this monopolistic grasp over oil and freight in the United States, they were essentially taxing the population. Mm. And um, the government wasn't doing anything to... to prevent it from happening because in certain cases members of congress and senators were actually in collusion with these railroad networks whether it was through through bribes or just the sort of consolidation of power and relationships that would help them down the line were intentionally allowing this to happen so when everything simmered over in 1877 the army was called in the population was 
uh, you know, subdued in, in most of these instances. And the author continues to explain that the only way that these monopolies can be defeated is if the, the people unite and it, it sounds like a cliche, but he says like the state uh, legislatures and the, the senators and the congressmen who are presiding over these, you know, smaller slices of the United States alone either cannot or will not um, resist them. So the, quote, United States mm. need to come together and break the sort of shackles of this monopoly, which at the time was the greatest monopoly ever seen in the West, at least, um, and I'd imagine globally. And the same kind of situation is at hand now, I think, which is where this interesting parallel is. And you can see these things starting to happen in these court cases that are being brought against the likes of Facebook. Um, and you told, you told me about um, the antitrust case against Apple, where you know, the government is finally starting to sort of approach these big tech companies and say like, well, hey, you essentially have monopolies. Um, it just so happens that they all align ideologically. So they're reinforcing one another's kind of um, grasps on, on power. And when mm. one of these companies, um, you know, senses Donald Trump or permanently suspends his Twitter account, you see Facebook follow suit and ban him from Facebook. Um, and Spotify won't allow him to listen to their... Uh... <laughs> Their BLM Black playlist. Lives Matter playlist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Trump will be salty about that. Yeah. Um, so it, it's really interesting. Like you, you could draw the parallel where the, the Capitol Hill riot is the equivalent of this 1877 riot against the railroad monopoly because um, it's people reaching boiling point over what is not a financial tax, but an ideological tax on the entire population, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. People are being forced to live under this constraint or burden that they shouldn't have to put up with. And this is what happens. So obviously this insurrection has been subdued, but one of two things is going to happen. Either the United States government and the governments of other countries, because these are global monopolies, need to fight back against it and it doesn't look like it'll happen effectively, in my opinion, mm. but they need to break these monopolies up or the population's going to continue to push back. Oh, yeah, 100%. No, I totally agree. Um, I, yeah, it's fascinating because I, I think it's it's both. Eh? It's like an ideological tax and it's a actual tax on the population. Like just the, the sheer amount of wealth that each of them command is insane. Although probably not as big as Standard Oil was at its peak um as far as oh that would be an interesting comparison to make actually i'm not sure yeah it's one of the things i know we were chatting about um but just to reiterate for the listeners is i feel like the parallel between the two is an interesting one to try and make because of the um uh the the price to set up your own um e-commerce store is pretty much nil you know mm -hmm. uh the, yeah. the price to compete with these companies isn't beyond um the average joe i feel like i think the barrier to entry is much smaller well the the price to attempt to compete yeah it can be done basically mm. like whereas starting up your own oil well uh and refining plant and everything i think is like way like those old school monopolies are like brutal you know like mm -hmm. they're just fucking jesus christ if they existed today and you know congress and senate was as uh limp dicked as they are right now you know, and they'll just fucking bend over for, for these wealthy corporations, then the populace mm. would be 
fucked. They'd be so um, fucked. I just want to want to interject quickly to like illustrate another an, another point that was in this article before you carry on because it kind of just sprung into my mind and I think it's important. There were cases where, in order to to crush their competitors, the Standard Oil Company would um you know force the their cost of shipping to increase to a point where it wasn't financially feasible, or ask these railroad networks to just not ship their product altogether, meaning that there were times where oil was literally being pumped out of the well and just running into the ground next to it. Yeah. So these these guys with smaller businesses who might have taken the risk to set up their own well um, were obviously just seeing their, their money and capital completely squandered, not to mention the obviously like environmental impact of having oil seeping into the ground. Um, <laughs> but it, it's interesting... Yeah. When I think about that, I kind of make the connection only now, or I sorry, I made the connection only now, that um, you could compare these these sort of startup oil wells to independent political ideas or independent cultural movements being denied access to distribution by these tech monopolies. Oh, yeah, hundred percent. Which is yeah. Um, the Red Scare store that was selling these like black shirts with uh, it was the, yeah, ISIS the fucking... writing on them. Yeah, and that's the one I was trying to yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah, but instead of ISIS, it's like two chicks. Uh, yeah, are... great shirts. Yeah, great shirts. Banned from Shopify, you know, and and like Red Scare Pod was just kicked off Twitter. So not like yeah, there there fucking totally is like a um, a block of being able to you know commodify ideas and talk about ideas right now Absolutely. within these monopolies yeah. but it remains to be seen what's going to happen though this is, this is one of the the oh god it's so fascinating puts on twitter I mean, could be the play of the week um but yeah. you, you can't just just stop ideas that's the that's the problem man you know like they're trying so hard but yeah. they can't like look at the fucking soviet union man you know it didn't go that well. The shit comes crumbling <laughs> down eventually. Like it all comes back around. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's the, it's, it's so fucking funny. It's like the story is old as time. The hubris of um, the powerful to try and control the, the masses and it will never fucking work. It never has. It's never going to. Um, I just, and you, it, God, could you imagine if it did work? It wouldn't work for anyone. Not even the powerful. Like, no. you know, cause I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to end well. But who knows? We'll see. Nice watching it from over this side of the world. That's for sure. Yeah, man. I'm, yeah, that's a really good thing to point out. Um, I'm just really grateful that, you know, we're not having to bear the, the brunt of it. Um, I, I, I sometimes have a, a conflict, actually, where, you know, I feel as though maybe I should kind of analyze this shit a little bit less since i am so detached from it i feel sort of like um some fucking anthropologist going into the amazon and trying to um watch a tribe and he watches this tribe for for three years or something and feels as though he understands and has the authority or like the the right to discuss it authoritatively yeah and i i sometimes catch myself or i i maybe have like imposter syndrome or some shit um, well, let's bring it back. Do you ever sort of no, 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 have I, that thought? I, I hear what you're saying because it is kind of like you know, sitting over uh, from the other side of the world. You know, who are you to talk about what's actually happening on the streets of another country? Um, mm. But 
this shit affects us as well. So New Zealand and Australia are both in the Five Eyes, as far as I'm aware. I know New Zealand is. Yeah, we, we are, yeah. Yeah. So the Patriot Act was one of the, um, like, fucking worst pieces of legislation that led to <laughs> widespread spying, uh, led to the crackdown on Kim.com, unfortunately. Um, whether mm-hmm. your opinion of him is positive or negative, uh, regardless, it still was disturbingly, like, authoritarian. Um, to see a fucking FBI raid on New Zealand soil was um, pretty insane. The laws that don't even apply here. And then they retrospectively made them apply here. So mm-hmm. Patriot Act 2.0 is already in discussion, right? And Amazon has already entered Australian shores. So how long before the lobbying starts, you know... The, the favored deals, like the new terrorism legislation against hateful speech. How long before all that shit starts? Um, yeah, and what that's are the a really good point. Of it? So like, I think it's like pretty important to be aware of that sort of thing. Um, you can mm-hmm. also drive yourself crazy doing that. Like long time friend of the pod and favored no-show guest uh it's <laughs> like very rightfully pointed out that you shouldn't really waste your life on the news um and it's it's fucking dangerous to pour time into something that produces no returns and i kind of agree with that like i sort of stand by the statement that you want to be financially benefited from the information that you're um you know consuming but also yeah. be aware of those issues like i i agree with that i think although, um what can you do i can't rally hmm. against the patriot act i can only fucking go up against it publicly and probably destroy my little to lack of a name that i have anyway you know yeah i i think f- firstly like you know the news is worth being around um if you are investing and you're trying to like we have started to introduce as a little slogan, profit from the dystopia. Um, <laughs> you know, like you're you're owed a return on your investment in blood and suffering. Yeah. And so that's one of the ways I view it. And also I think the news is worth being around if you like problem solving. If you if you're fascinated by puzzles, mm. which I am. Like and I, I see this podcast as like a, an attempt to like constantly f- twist and play with the rubik's cube and try and get the fucking colors to align oh, and yeah. like like you know you and i we we look for, for patterns and trends and sort of like what we view as i suppose just interesting phenomena mm. and i i think like the news offers that and I, I don't think it has to be like a sort of zero-sum game either it's not like i'm trying to to win by watching the news because i'm not like i'm not trying to win anything i'm just doing it because I think it offers yep. value to me. So on that note, our new segment uh, that I haven't discussed with Hayden yet, but it's happening live. <laughs> um, ways to profit from the dystopia in light of the Capitol Hill protests and the information that we've just um, disseminated. Uh, I would put my bets on people. So I've seen a lot of bullshit on Twitter and a lot of bullshit around the place. Like, you know, well, if you don't like uh, um, the rules of facebook or twitter to start your own um which i thought is a interesting opportunity and and i'm still would say that i'm bullish on the fact that there is now perhaps not you know the biggest opportunity available but there certainly is cracks that are starting to show and that i think that people can make a buck off and i would i Mm -hmm. if i was a betting man which i am um and i had to get up and go which i probably don't um (laughs) just and the sorry not the I feel like I got to get up and go. I just don't have the fucking interest um, to start a company. I would be looking at 
maybe free speech networks, payment processing, I would say, is a big one. So Stripe has blocked um, Gab from making any money. And they right. said that you're not allowed to use our payment processors, so is PayPal. Which is just like, that's free fucking money. Jesus Christ, you assholes like deal with JP Morgan and Deutsche Bank. You're not gonna deal with fucking Gab, like the Pepe <laughs> disseminator, the the great distributor of crap memes and like um, you know, fantasies of the deranged. Yeah, those those mm, Mexican that's... cabals are fucking way better. Like Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, we'll allow fucking terrorists to launder their money through our platforms, but we won't. Um, we won't let like angry white people. Yeah. But yeah, you're, I, you're probably right about that, man. Yeah, bullish on web hosting as well. Another um, thought is, um, you know, what if now we're in, in the era of you know pirate social media, mm. the the equivalent of like you know pirate radio in the seventies or, or whatever. You could maybe. I wonder if people value their sort of like free speech enough to to pay to belong to you know these sort of independent rogue platforms well um, um, on like a subscription model pay like a you know a dollar a month to be a part of this kind of like splinter twitter or whatever so uh there's been a lot of talk on the on one of the subreddits that i frequent um and someone just went what ahead, is that oh, like the red scarepod one um oh, right yeah. someone just went ahead and started their own forum because they're worried about getting cracked down on by reddit uh, mm-hmm. And it's active and it's fucking going. Eh? Um, and I was thinking like, well, that's really interesting that there's been a, a push to people actually using those um, forums. So the Donald, you know, um, yeah. can you recall the name of that forum? Sorry. Uh, yeah, I'll just send it to you. Um, okay, cool. Uh, I can bring it up right now. So it's like literally just browsing it before this episode. Um, while I was doing some fantastic DD. I'm glad it's called Red you Scare weren't Dog browsing it Cafe. during the episode. Otherwise I would have. Yeah. Told you that would have been naughty. Um, um, yeah, there we go. Redscare.cap. Dot cafe. Dot um, oh, cafe. Yeah, so it's like cool. pretty active. Uh, they have a, you know, 278 members already, and it was just started, like, as far as I'm aware, yesterday. But yeah, nice. Um, yeah, man, 100%. Th- this is what I'm talking about with the inefficiencies. So this is what I'd be bullish on is that there's more opportunity than ever for these little networks, and you can make money off them, definitely. Um, there's no shortage of forums that sort of, you know, do a little bit of advertising on the side and boast members within the thousand to 10,000 range, um, and have very active communities, you know, and I like the segment. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of the value of these very, um, active, active and independent communities, now would be a nice time to plug our own Patreon. Oh yeah. Um, Yuck. so we are like we're doing exclusive content for people who want to support us on patreon um, we're going to be doing like one bonus pod in the last week of every month so you can subscribe to support us for doing like the free content which you can obviously still listen to and then also get access to the uh, bonus pod so at the request of one of our subscribers we're going to be doing a bit of a deep dive on um Ocugen. So if you're listening, dear listener, we hear you and we will deliver the bag. Ocugen is like a, a biotech company um, who is part... Actually, fuck, I'm not even going to give too much if detail right now. We'll save it. DD, um, from longtime investors, Modern Guild, uh, you know, and all of our fantastic Shkreli analysis, then come along and check it out. Yes. Um, Come and check it out. Yeah. All of the all of the money that we're we're getting on Patreon, we're just gonna 
keep reinvesting into to whatever we're doing um, to, you know, spread the content, um, produce more content, et cetera, et cetera. So please ways to make money off jump the on. Which is what all of you should be doing, to be honest. Like, <laughs> Yes, exactly. It's a flawed system and there's inefficiencies all over the show. Um, that is one thing that I truly believe that I think um, now more than ever is a time to look at the opportunities that are being presented um, in the wake of maniacal hubris. Maniacal hubris. That's um, just as the way All Watched Over by Machines of Love and Grace <laughs> makes a perfect title for a post-rock album. Yeah. Maniacal hubris would be like a really great um, like uh, thrash metal album name, I think. That's cool. That's a genre that I've always wanted to appeal to, so sick. <laughs> yeah there you go i wonder if um if there are trends among our listeners in terms of the genre of music they listen to um our spotify hold on there actually is and you can see it on like the podcaster's spotify uh i think it's like pretty fucking run-of-the-mill shit (laughs) fun i'm I'm interested to hear this now though (laughs) um no i think it was like mac miller and black sabbath uh, was what I was seeing. <laughs> hey, well, Black Sabbath is is pretty fringe nowadays. Is so it? that's that's nice. Yeah, like who the fuck listens to Black Sabbath? I listen to no, Black Sabbath. Like, I know you do, but <laughs> barely anybody our age would be listening to Black Sabbath. Oh shit. Okay. Uh, most most old bands have like no listeners on Spotify, man. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I mean, when I say no listeners, I mean like a few million. You know, compared to Drake, who probably has like five hundred million monthly listeners or whatever. Oh right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Uh, the Kanye West, Drake, Eminem, Frank Sinatra, Kid Cudi is what they're putting at us so far. <laughs> what? So, fucking, I don't know. <laughs> Do with that as you will. Shout out to the Frank Sinatra enthusiasts amongst our listeners. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. It, it was Black Sabbath, <laughs> but whatever. Yeah, he's been displaced by Kid Cudi. I mean, they've been displaced. Yeah. So... Yeah, if, if you uh, want to subscribe to our Patreon, please go to www.patreon.com forward slash modern guilt, you know, slide us some US dollars. And also, please talk to us about the podcast and about your thoughts and feelings and questions about whatever we've discussed or anything, even remotely relevant, because we want to, you know, promote that. Um, promote discussion and uh we don't want to monopolize ideas Mm. on modern guilt that's what we hate we hate that so don't let us do that was there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we wrapped up damon um no that's pretty good i think yeah go check out the doco we'll put it in the show notes um again it's like much bigger in scope than i was uh you know putting forward to y'all um definitely worth Mm -hmm. a watch i loved it all right basically yeah fucking beautiful this has been a very fun episode man thank you oh as always it's enjoyable thank you to everybody who uh is listening we've had like a continual nice uptick in listens and plays and engagement and all of that so we love you guys it means a lot that you 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 guys are checking to any gang uh, gang listening still um good luck for tomorrow luck to you hayden for tomorrow yes Uh, at some point ryan cohen's story should appear on here i was wishing that i'd read up on it today because in terms of monopoly um the man that fought monopoly is our beloved ryan cohen uh who won against the great amazon or at least won against part of it you know um, yes. against the machine there's victories to be had 
Yeah. Also, I would say for um for any any GameStop, you know, fanboys and or girls and or non-binaries, it's probably not too late to get on board. Mm. I reckon. Fuck no. Might yeah. So Fuck you know, join no. the fun. Join the fun. Be part of a legacy. <laughs> I say that sarcastically. <laughs> All right. Let's finish up. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Um, peace out. Take care. All right. Peace. Thank you.